The idea that God would demand a payment for sin is contradictory to the very notion of forgiveness. If a price must be paid, then can it be said that sins are forgiven? If God really is willing to pardon sin, then surely no ransom price must be necessary if God is just willing to pardon sin. If a price is demanded, then forgiveness is no more gracious than any legal transaction, like paying a parking fine. The council doesn't forgive you after you've paid. Questions and thoughts like those you might expect from someone who is not a Christian and who's struggling to come to terms with what the Bible teaches. But these are arguments heard today from many theological scholars, even sadly from some church pulpits. It's part of a movement against one of the most central tenets of gospel truth. Now don't worry about these words, I'll explain them shortly. The penal substitutionary atonement. Secured for sinners by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you learn substitutionary, you know, you've got a six-syllable word that you've got in your vocabulary now. Don't worry about what those long words mean. You'll know by the end of the next half hour. That God actually required the penalty for sins to be paid. That Jesus paid that penalty that God could be so harsh and so severe like that, surely is completely at odds with his claims of compassion and mercy and grace and kindness. That's what lies behind much of this thinking and reasoning. It's nothing new. If you went back to the 16th century, there was a movement then called Socinianism. They believed that God's attributes of love and goodness far outweighed all of his other attributes. So that in his great love, God's displeasure against sin, God's demand for sin's penalty, they are simply overwhelmed by God's love. And so it's cancelled out. God's love and grace have reigned supreme. And so to pay the penalty for sin is not necessary. God just forgives and pardons sin because his love overwhelms everything else. Because God offers forgiveness and pardon in that way, because of the greatness for his love, no demand for the payment of sin is necessary. There are theologians who argue this. That God still requires sin's payment whilst offering forgiveness, these two things are incompatible, they say. It's an idea that is more common than you might think amongst those who would call themselves evangelicals. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia is not always the best place to go for theology. However, 
There is one little example that's very, very helpful. Uh, the lion, of course, Aslan, in the Chronicles of Narnia, is in a sense a representation of Christ in that story. And as a lion, Aslan has paws. With claws extended, those paws are sharp and lethal. With claws withdrawn, those paws are soft and padded. He is both good and fearsome. And it's said in the story that the children go all trembly when they see him. And in the story, it's said of Aslan, people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. But the Bible teaches, you see, God is both good and terrible. Terrible in the sense that if you are a sinner, as Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll come back to this a little bit later, knowing the terror of the Lord. There is a terror in knowing God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in your sins. The whole world, except eight people in Noah's day, discovered that fact for themselves, didn't they? Our whole focus this morning will be on something which I've mentioned a few times in the last few weeks. There's nearly always going to be a little bit of overlap in these messages because of the nature of our topic. We're going to put it under the, under the microscope a little bit further because we need to be really clear and very, very confident in what the Bible teaches on some of these really important issues. Last week, we considered God's incredible response to the unpalatable truth of our state in our sins before a holy God. But that God, by his grace, has justified us freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24 well, this morning, our, our key text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking primarily at verses 18 to 21. And if some of you are rather surprised that I'm not going to mention verse 17, well, that actually relates to tonight's message. So we're going to begin in verse 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. The first thing we have to remember constantly when we're talking about the gospel is that it is all of God. All of God. Salvation is all of God. Now, if you're a Christian and you've been in churches like this one for a long time, that may seem obvious to you, but it's actually a great stumbling block to many people that their salvation must and can only be all of God. And it's the starting point of everything that comes next. A correct starting point is usually very significant. If you're sitting at an exam, always begin reading the exam paper at page one. Or two-thirds of the way through the exam, you might be in for a rude shock. If you're wanting to fly from Manchester Airport, you don't check in at Liverpool. 
the correct starting point is always important. And the starting point with the gospel is that it is all of God. It is all down to God. Every part of it is of God. So much so that at no point in your salvation can you or do you reconcile yourself to God. To be reconciled, of course, the word that appears in the text there, to be reconciled is to have a broken relationship restored. Typically, we judge that any person who is guilty of breaking a relationship with someone else, the person who's broken the relationship, the person who's done the thing that's caused the problem, the onus is on them to restore it. The onus is on them to go to the person and try and sort it out. They have said something, they have done something which has caused harm or hurt to the other person. And so it's up to them to go and make it right. It's up to them to make amends. It's up to them to be reconciled to the person they've offended. Now, as we've seen, the fruitless, the sinlessness of men and women is actually such that we can never make amends with God. We can never hope to put ourselves right in God's eyes. There is no goodness there is no righteousness in us to be able to do that. It's impossible. But the gospel says this, that God, even though he is the offended party, he has taken all the necessary steps that he might reconcile us to himself. Such is the extent of God's grace and mercy that he would do that for you and for me. So you see, even as the sinner confesses their sin, even as the sinner repents of their sin, even as the sinner believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and puts their trust in him, the sinner can never be said to be reconciling themselves to God. Sinners are caught up in God's reconciling work. Even our believing is God's work in us, says John in his gospel. Even our faith is God's gift to us. In Ephesians chapter 2, in the passage we'll be looking at this evening. So verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5 highlights and emphasizes the title of last Sunday evening's sermon, God's incredible response. God has chosen to reconcile sinners to himself. God has decided to do for us that which we could never do. God himself has reached out in grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and brought us back himself. None of us could ever say that we played any part in it at all. It's all of God. That's why we praise and worship him. That's why he receives all the glory. There is nothing for us to pat ourselves on the back for. It's all of God. And Paul tells us that this 
reconciling work that God has done is the theme of the message that we proclaim. Be reconciled to God. What is it that people out there, or maybe there are some people in here, need to hear? You need to be reconciled to God. What is the message of the gospel? You need, you must be reconciled to God. Gospel preaching is about passing on God's message of reconciliation, says Paul. He has made us ambassadors in this. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. This is the message people need to, be, need to hear. You have to be reconciled to the God from whom you have estranged yourself and made yourself an enemy. You've brought upon yourself God's anger, God's condemnation, because that's what your sins deserve. But you can be reconciled to him because of the work of Christ. That's in verse 19. Means that your sins and your sins penalty can be taken away through Christ. Not be imputed to you as they ought to be. You can be reconciled with God. God has a plan for your life is not gospel preaching. God had a plan for the thief on the cross next to Christ. And with a few hours, he was dead. God does have a plan for everyone's life. But that's not the, that's not the crux of the gospel. God does have a plan for everyone's life, but you have no idea what it is, any more than they do. Why mention it? As if it's certain that their life is somehow going to be this wonderful, long, happy existence in Christ. You wouldn't look up at the thief on the cross and say, God has a plan for your life. The guy's about to die. He's hanging on a cross. But he does need to hear this message. Be reconciled to God before you die. That message fits. It always does. In every situation and with every sinner. You need to be reconciled to God is a message that will never be out of place. It will always be the relevant thing to say. The thief said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now that's a reconciliation. That's reconciliation. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. God can give you purpose in life. Is not gospel preaching. God gave Stephen purpose in life and he was stoned to death probably just months after he was converted. When you say to someone God can give you purpose in life I suspect that death within a few months is actually not what you had in mind and neither will they when you say it. 
But that was God's purpose for Stephen. You've no idea what God's purpose for them might be. He will have a purpose. He does have a purpose. But don't say that as though it's going to be some wonderful utopia in the eyes of a sinner. Unbelievers have no desire. Unbelievers don't have the first inkling of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Of what it means to do what we've just sung. To deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. That's what the gospel is all about. Unbelievers, you see, if you talk to an unbeliever about having their life enhanced. For an unbeliever, having your life enhanced is anything that comes on a par with winning the national lottery. That's what they think having your life enhanced is all about. You talk to them about a wonderful plan and purpose that God is for their life. That's all they'll imagine. What do they need to hear? You, my friend, are so very, very far from God. Your sinfulness has put you under God's curse for all of eternity. But in Jesus Christ, God has done everything that you need to be saved. And you can be reconciled to God for all of eternity. That's the gospel. Paul says, that's what, that's what my ministry as a gospel preacher is all about. Be reconciled to God and what does Paul say his great motivation is in preaching the gospel the lovely pleasant meaningful lives that people are going to live as Christians let's go back to the beginning of the passage that we read at verse 10 we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ This is Paul's motivation in gospel preaching. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. That's the gospel. That's gospel preaching. There's terror coming. But God in his grace has made a way for you to be saved. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. And if you believe in him, you will not perish. What does that mean? It means the terror will be turned away. Because it's already fallen on Christ. And you will have everlasting life. That's the gospel. God has done everything you need in order for you to be reconciled to God. No longer his enemy. No longer under his condemnation. No longer far off. And it's completely free. By his grace. Be reconciled to God. And let me tell you how. Let me tell you about Christ. That's the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less.
Paul calls himself an ambassador. An ambassador, in many ways, has a very simple job. The ambassador passes on the king's message as the king has given it. It's not down to the ambassador to change the message. He just delivers it. God wants to use your voice, your witness, to plead with men and women and boys and girls, be reconciled to God. It goes out as a plea, a most earnest and heartfelt request. And it's stated as an earnest requirement. Be reconciled. The gospel is nothing more and nothing less than this. That you be reconciled to the living God. And how does God achieve this? Well, to use a phrase that was very popular in children's television for many, many years, it's all about to me, to you. It's the ultimate to me, to you. I'm not going to dwell upon them, but there are many alternative interpretations around which contradict the glorious gospel truth, which Paul summarizes in verse 21, where he talks there, about God being made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You'd be amazed, some of the interpretations people put on that verse. A great exchange occurs between God and the sinner. It's as if Jesus comes up close to each one and he says, to me and to you. That's how it happens. To me, says Christ, to me, your sins, your guilt, your penalty, I'll take those. To you, says Christ, my righteousness, my goodness, which will make you acceptable before my Father. To me, to you, this glorious two-way exchange but precisely what that involves is under attack today some actually deny it altogether we need to make sure we hold firm to this glorious truth some will say that Christ's death it was merely an example of personal sacrifice for us to follow I'm not sure any of us want to follow it that far an example of self-giving love or that it was merely a victory over Satan at Calvary well it was that but it was much more than that or some will actually say if it was the paying of a ransom the ransom was actually paid to Satan so that he would release you some teach the teaching of the Bible is abundant with the truth that Jesus paid to God the penalty that God demands for sin that's what Jesus did at Calvary the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is that Christ atoned for our sins. He did what was required in order that you can be returned and restored and be in good and right standing before the holy God of heaven. Now, what is our problem before God? As we've seen, our problem 
is that our sins make us lawbreakers. Our sins make us trespassers and transgressors. Now let me assure you, that is an issue far worse than lacking a plan or purpose in your life. The fact that you are a transgressor before God, the fact that you are a lawbreaker before God, is far worse an issue about how you feel your life is going today. It's an issue which requires God's law to be satisfied. Like the many cries for justice that that we frequently hear in the news almost every day, the fact that we are made in God's image hasn't been completely lost on us. We, like God, know what it is to have a right sense of justice. And we know that the sentence needs to fit the crime, which is an, that's an issue right now, isn't it, about this man who's used his taxi cab in London to attack women. And the parole board have said he can go free and there's been an outcry over it. Justice isn't being done here. The sentence needs to fit the crime. He hasn't atoned for his crimes. This is not fitting. It's not just considering the severity of his offences and how many they were. Now, some say, for God to be like that, when he's supposed to be kind and loving, and to turn on his own son, and to mete out that justice on his own son in the place of sinners, some will say that is simply unacceptable and outrageous. But the Bible says, you see, God's justice is as strong as his love. And it must be upheld as he upholds his love. And that his requirement for justice must be carried out completely. It must be perfectly fulfilled and satisfied. And it has been. Your sins have been atoned for by and through the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. Because this is a type of legal issue with God. The Bible uses legal language and a legal framework, legal pictures, legal expressions. It's about a form of justice. It's about a penalty that has to be paid. That's why the word penal is used to speak of penalty that is necessary because a law has been broken. And Jesus has stepped into the sinner's place. Jesus has stepped in on their behalf. Which of course is why the word substitution is used. Because he's stood in the place of sinners. And because he has fully made satisfaction for sins before a holy God, the Father. That's why the word atonement is used. And so you have the penal, substitutionary atonement of Christ for sinners. That Christ died for sinners in no doubt. All through the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well, we keep hearing Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He died for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. In him we have redemption through his blood. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And so the New Testament goes on and on. The Old Testament likewise is filled 
with those truths. The glorious pinnacle of those, of course, being Isaiah chapter 53. And Jesus was made sin for us. What does that mean? Verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus was made to be sin for us. Well, we have to say right at the start, for Christ to be sin for us does not mean that he himself became a sinner. That's unthinkable. He had no sin of his own, and as God, he cannot be sinful. So he has not become a sinner. For Christ to be sin for us is Paul's way of describing that God's anger has been turned away from us and instead was turned upon Christ. God's anger was directed at Christ. The actual penalty for your sins, the actual penalty for your sins was carried out at Calvary 2,000 years ago. The actual penalty that your sins have accrued and are accruing that should fall upon you at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, it's all fallen on Christ already. He's taken it in your place. God made Jesus to be sin in that as God's judgment fell upon Christ at Calvary, God in Christ saw your sins and mine. Christ was not guilty of committing those sins, but he bore them in his body for me on the tree. He bore my sin. He took the penalty in my place. The closest, perhaps, that we might get in our own experience that helps us understand is a parent who pleads guilty on behalf of their child for an offence that their child has committed and the parent carries out the sentence on behalf of the child, sometimes being the theme of stories, films. The parent knows the child is guilty, wants to spare it from going to prison, and so goes to the police and says, it was me, it was me. The parent isn't guilty, but they stand in the place of the guilty one and take the guilt, and that's probably the nearest example I can think of that comes even close that's what God has done for us. He made Christ to be sin for us in that sense. And then we also saw last week that the very righteousness of Christ himself is laid upon us. It's been the theme in many of our hymns because it's such a central part of the gospel message that the very righteousness of Christ is laid upon us. So God can look down on us and he doesn't see us in our filth and in our sin. He sees us in the very cleanness of and sinlessness of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the high priest in the Old Testament who stands before God in filthy clothes and they take them off him and they put clean royal robes, perfect robes that make him acceptable around his shoulders. Of course, that's where the analogy of the parent standing in for the child falls down. Because the child despite what the parent has done for them, the child is still guilty. Nothing's changed in the child. The child will still live with all their guilt and shame. And their parent going to prison for the child will not clean up the child's life the way it needs to be cleaned up. What's to stop that child carrying on offending? 
remarkably in the gospel, your guilt is gone. Your guilt is gone. The exchange is full. The exchange is real. The sinner in Christ stands before God atoned, forgiven, clean, just like Christ himself. Because it's Christ's own righteousness which he has put upon you. Remember those objections I began with? It was the first. The idea that God would demand a payment for sins is contradictory to the very notion of forgiveness. If a price must be paid, then surely sins are not truly forgiven. Well, if you or I were able to pay for our sins, then maybe we could argue that we don't need God's forgiveness. If you could truly pay back what you owe to God for your sins, maybe you could argue you don't need his forgiveness because you paid him back for what you've done. You'd be even with God. Of course, the problem is you'd probably go and sin all over again and you'd be back to square one. But when another has paid the penalty and you haven't and forgiveness is offered, that forgiveness really does mean something. Because that forgiveness is being offered to you because someone else has paid. That doesn't make it less forgiving. For God to punish his own son instead of you and then declare on that basis he forgives you and that you are reconciled, actually, doesn't that demonstrate a heart of the most amazing forgiveness? That God's prepared to, spend, to spare his son? That on that basis he can forgive you? Doesn't that make his forgiveness even more precious? Even more special? Which of you would do to your own child what God did to his for the reconciliation of others who were guilty? Which of you would do that for your, with your own child? That someone else could be forgiven? That's a heart of amazing love and grace. Some say if God really is willing to pardon sin, then surely no ransom price is necessary. Why can't God just say it's forgiven? Well, let me ask you, which is more meaningful for us as sinners? If God simply chose to excuse and overlook sin because he loves us, and on that basis offers us a pardon, well, that certainly would be a demonstration of love, without a doubt. But how much greater is God's love for you in that he offers you pardon on the basis that he was prepared to have his son die in your place. How much greater is that love? Some say if a price is demanded, forgiveness is no more gracious than any legal transaction. How is it forgiveness? Christ paid the penalty. 
Well, that would be true if I was the one who paid. That might be true if I was the one who paid. But I didn't. And I never could. But Jesus has. And it boils down again, you see, the fact that God offers forgiveness because he gave up his own son. Now that's grace. That's grace. See, these objections, when you pause and just think them through for a minute, they just don't add up. They don't add up. This is the gospel. Jesus says, your sins to me, my righteousness to you. By this, you can be reconciled to God. God wants you to stand before him and say, yes, Lord, in Christ, all my sins to you. Yes, in Christ, all your righteousness to me. Forgive me. In Christ, reconcile me to yourself on account of all that your son has done. Do you have that assurance this morning? Because that is the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ.